0: today uh, we are going to be launching uh, about a four-part sermon series and we're calling it united by faith being a reconciled community in a divided world united by faith being a reconciled community in a divided world I uh, just want to give you a heads up, I'm going just do a brief, quick intro, and then uh, Michael Emerson, who's uh, a member of our church and a man who has devoted uh, much of his career towards this particular issue that's at the heart of God to kind of launch this sermon series. So what I want to do is just kind of lay a foundation for what this is, and then I'm going to invite Michael here in a second. We in a new community talk a lot about the gospel because we believe that the gospel is essential to who we are and what we do as followers of Jesus. And I can't get more simple than this when I say that the gospel is about reconciliation. The gospel is about reconciliation. I know it's been kind of a, a packed, busy morning, but, but can I get an amen if this resonates with you? The gospel is about, rec- it, gets, it, it doesn't get simpler than this. And if you see the biblical trajectory from Genesis to Revelation, this is central to who God is. The scripture passage that we come to over and over again in New Community comes from Colossians chapter 1, verse 19. Let me just put this up. God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him, that is Christ, to reconcile to himself. And there's a key word, all things. Things on earth and heaven by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. It doesn't get simpler than this. The gospel is about reconciliation. If you're wondering, what does that word reconciliation mean? It simply means to put things back together to right wrong relationships to put things back together to right wrong relationships and what you see in scripture is that from the very beginning of time the mission of god has been to put things back together to right wrong relationships now where we veer off course is this is that we fundamentally misunderstand That the essence of this reconciling work wasn't just about us and God. But that at its core, it also entails us to each other and to all of creation. The reconciling work of God wasn't just to reconcile sinners to a holy God, but to reconcile us to each other and all of creation. That is central to the mission of God. So when we say that the gospel is about saving sinners from going to hell, we fundamentally short circuit the centrality of what God was about through his son, Jesus, that the death and resurrection of Jesus, in his very own words, was to usher in the kingdom of God, the rule and reign of God, where he was putting back together everything that was marred because of sin, and that included us to God, but also included us to each other and to all of creation. When we narrow the work of Jesus to simply us and God, and we neglect the horizontal dimension into all of creation, we end up with a truncated gospel without power. The gospel is about reconciliation. Now, the implications of that are enormous. And here's just one before I invite Michael up. And that is this. That means that the church, you and me, Serve as signs then of God's kingdom. We, we, listen, listen, we serve as signs that the rule and reign of God that ultimately reconciles all things in the kingdom where our relationship with God is made right, in the kingdom where our relationship with each other is made right, in the kingdom where all the fallen creation is put back together that the church serve as the sign that God's kingdom, the rule and reign of God in this reconciling work is here partially and also will come at its completion when Christ returns. That is that the church is the one place where the the outside world can look at and say, there's a place where you could catch a glimpse of God putting the world back together. Why? Check this out. Because there's a place where people who are alienated and are in enmity with each other out in the world are being brought together under the lordship of Jesus. There is a place where you'll catch a glimpse of something that doesn't happen in Chicago. What's that? There is actually a place where people from different race, ethnicity, culture, and class are united as one under his lordship. And if God can do that there, maybe he could do something about what's happening out there. And we know from church history that the early church embodied and served as signs of this kingdom. People saw in the Roman world something they'd never seen before. That is a Jew and Gentile, slave and master, poor and the rich, walking arm in arm, into the marketplace, worshiping together, raising their children together, marrying each other, bearing the loved ones together. And this unity wasn't just the result of conversion, it became the reason for the conversion. This unity wasn't just the result of, look what God did. It became the reason for why people began to believe the gospel. The unity served as a powerful witness that God was doing something that was humanly impossible. Church, why are we doing this sermon series? Can you imagine a more critical time in our country than when the church needs to be the church? Is there a more critical time than now when the church needs to be a visible, tangible sign of God's kingdom? I remind you guys all the time. We as followers of Jesus don't just possess the message. We are the message. We don't just possess some good news that we go out and share. We are the message. And the question is, According to the watching world, what is the message of the gospel in the church today? Michael Emerson is um, someone that I'm getting to know better. He's actually a lot funnier. And when you get to know him personally, he's got this kind of quirky sense of humor. Uh, getting to love, love, love this brother. Uh, he's one of the leading scholars on race and religion. And many of you know, if you've read his book, his work began, uh, his scholarly work began with Divided by Faith, which obviously was uh, explosive to the evangelical world when it came out. 2001, it was named the Distinguished Book of the Year by the Society for the Scientific Study of Religion. He's written a number of different books. And at his core, his passion is to see the church live into this reality. That we are a sign of the kingdom. And particularly in our cultural climate today, his message is more needed than ever. So will you give a warm new community welcome to one of our own, Michael Emerson.
1: Well, good morning to you. Morning. So a week and a half ago, I was giving a similar sermon at Moody Bible Institute during their chapel. Do we have any Moody Bible students? There they are. So I get to hear it twice. (laughs) Now, if you ever take a uh, speech class, one of the things they teach you is you've got to have some kind of intro that hooks your audience. Something interesting, a story, some humor, something like that. So... When I was at Moody, I told them a story, which happens to be true, that a couple of years ago, the Emerson clan had a contest, a singing contest, in which the men competed to see who is the worst singer. And then I proceeded to tell them the good news that I had won that contest. And then I walked around, it's a big big auditorium, there's people up here, and I asked them to give me some love, and I, I was blowing kisses and everything, because I had won. Okay. Now, it's kind of odd to celebrate being the loser, but it turns out it's because of the culture we grew up in. So a few years ago my uh, sister was in the Peace Corps in Kyrgyzstan, and when she would come back, she always wanted us to play the games they play, and all the games have the same end result it is determine who is the do rock. Who is the do rock? The do rock, it turns out, is the loser. And all the games that they play are designed to figure out who is the loser. And then everybody else feels good. All right. I lived uh, with my family two years ago in Copenhagen, Denmark, and stumbled across this little book in the bookstore there, uh, written in both Danish and English. And it's an intro guide to America and Americans. So for those Danes who might want to travel here, what are Americans, what's American culture? And on the back... I was just so surprised by what it says. The number one thing you must know about American culture is it is designed to determine who wins. Everything that Americans do from birth is designed to prepare them for that system. The games they play, the competitions they're in, always to determine who the winner is. And then it goes on further. If you do not win, you lose. Meaning, second place is basically as bad as last place. Well, I thought it's rather instructive, right? Because you can carry that. Americans are always feeling inadequate and have very high rates of needing to talk with counselors and everything. It's because we all feel like we're losers all the time because you cannot win all the time. Now, why do I tell you all this? Because I want to illustrate the power of culture. Because that's what we're going to talk about today. That culture can shape It it so shapes us that we cannot see beyond it. We can't think that there would be a possible alternative way to be, to think, and to do. So, I'm going to focus today on comparing two cultures. One is the biblical culture that Jesus prays for. And then, as a sociologist, we're going to look at what we actually have. Okay? So, if we have the PowerPoint, we're going to focus on John 17, 20 through 23, if that comes up, great. If not, hopefully you can look in your Bibles or on your phones. John seventeen twenty through 23. I'm going to read it through, and then we'll come back and unpack it. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me, and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one I and them and you and me so that they may be brought to complete unity then the world will know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me so i've read that a few times maybe you have two i can kind of quickly go over it it seems a little convoluted in a way but let's take a careful look at this so my prayer for them my prayer is not for them alone so who's praying Okay, so this is Jesus. This is Jesus praying for not for them alone. Them is referring to the disciples. Something very important here. This is Jesus' last recorded prayer on earth. So just like we put a lot of weight on people on their deathbed saying their last words, we put a lot of weight on what it is that Jesus wants to leave us before he leaves the earth. So my prayer, he says, is not for them alone, the disciples. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. In other words, for us. He is praying for all future believers. So now what does he pray for? He could pray for many a thing. He could be praying for health, wealth, success, victory. He could be praying that we stay true to the Christian cause. It's sort of stunning what he says. What he actually prays for is, That all of them may be one. Very connected, directly connected to what Pastor Peter just said. That all of them may be one. And then he even describes, well, what does that mean? Because we could bicker about, well, what does one really mean? Father, he says, that oneness is just as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us. So he even tells us what it means and how to do it. That our unity comes, this impossible thing of being one comes by focusing ourselves on the Holy Trinity. And as we draw closer to Christ, since that's the center, we all draw closer to each other. And then he says again, why do this? So that the world may believe. So that the world may believe. Wow. I've been taught growing up that I need to learn the four spiritual laws and go out by myself and stand in a street corner and try to share my faith with individuals. But here he's saying that the testimony is not my individual faith. It's this oneness of us together. Now that's weird because in our culture as we'll see, individual is everything. So it's hard for us to think it could be anything else. Okay. And he says he even says this, "I have given them the glory that you gave me." In other words, he's telling us, "I have empowered you. I have empowered all of us." To do this impossible thing, he's saying that we may be one, just as Jesus and the Father are one. Brought to complete unity. And again, he says, why? So that the world will know that you sent me, and even more, the world will know they're loved. Okay. Um, Do you know I had a PowerPoint that was going to go with this whole thing, but I don't see anything today. Should I just go without it? We're going without it. Okay. (laughs) All righty. So I I wrote a book a while ago called Divided by Faith. What a fun subject. The the good thing is that the next book I wrote was called United by Faith. So there is hope. (laughs) What this book boils down to is it's a story of well-intentioned people, Christians. Their values and their institutions and how they actually recreate the racial divisions they say they oppose. Say that again is that... Here we have Christians working very hard for unity, which is our Christian call. But the culture of which they try to do that in means that they're actually driving us further apart. All right, so the subtitle of this book is Evangelical Religion and the Problem of Race in America. So let me just briefly tell you what is an evangelical. The uh, media uses that usually in very inappropriate ways. An evangelical is basically a Bible-believing Christian. So, evangelical is four things. Believes that the final, ultimate authority to anything is biblical. You find truth in the Bible. And we try to live by what the Bible teaches. evangelical believes that salvation is through Christ alone. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Evangelicals believe this is such good news that they want to share it with others. That they want others to be able to be drawn into the kingdom. And then finally, what we call engaged orthodoxy. Okay, and by that we mean that is the belief that this faith is so powerful that it actually has solutions to social problems and ills of our society today. That's what we mean by engaged orthodoxy. We actually want to see solutions to problems and that we believe our faith has those solutions. Uh, The Wall Street Journal wrote that evangelicals are the most energetic element of society addressing racial divisions. So there's a lot of energy going on out there. There are a lot of evangelicals in the country. That's what they had to say in their assessment. Now, I have one term that I, I need you to grasp, and it is this term called racialized society. So the United States, along with a few other nations in the world, is what we call racialized. So let me define to you what racialized means, and then we'll look at some examples. So a racialized society is where race matters profoundly for your life experiences. How you might experience being stopped by a police officer is an example. For your life opportunities, what is possible, and then for your social relationships. So in a place like the United States, it isn't random who we know and who we hang out with. It is determined very much by race, who we'll marry, who we live with, who our family is, and so on. So that's one part of what a racialized society is, and the other part is just as important. A racialized society puts people into racial categories and then ranks the categories, winners and losers. And you can see it in step after step, and I will explain some of those. So you um, have a handout it's in your bulletin, so if you could pull that out. We're going to look at a couple of these. And you will see some color graphs of Chicago here So I want to walk you through a couple of these What I'm trying to do is to illustrate how a racialized society works right here in Chicago And then across our country So this first graph with the pretty colors Is saying where do people live in the neighborhoods of Chicago by race? Does it matter what race you are where you end up living in Chicago? Where you see what looks like purple These are predominantly white neighborhoods. The green is predominantly black neighborhoods. The orange, predominantly Hispanic neighborhoods. If you have really good eyesight, you'll see that there is one predominantly Asian neighborhood, Chinatown. And then where it's white, these are the few neighborhoods in Chicago that don't have a majority racial group. Usually these are neighborhoods transitioning from one group to another. But right now, this is what we see. So you can see there's a pattern here in where people live, obviously. Now, go to the next graph. This isn't about race. This is about class. In the modern economy that we have, we don't talk about upper class, middle class, lower class so much anymore. We talk about how people relate to the economy. What sort of jobs do they have? And our terms are creative class, the service class, and working class. Creative class are probably most people in this room. Creative class are people who... Either you've gone to college, and you're engaged in creative activities of the economy, or you may not have gone to college, but you're an artist, a musician. This means anybody doing such creative things. Uh, Engineers, researchers, it includes physicians, nurses, it goes on and on. Where do those folks live? Those folks tend to make the most money, and you can see that they are concentrated along the lake from downtown going north through Wrigleyville Wrigleyville and on up. The biggest swath of people by far that live in Chicago are in the service class. That's the red. The service class are people who basically make their living serving the creative class. They're cooking in the restaurants where the creative class visits. They're building the houses, putting the roads in and such. And in a big change from if you looked at a map like this in the 50s, We have just a little bit of working class folks. People working still in factories. I just read that we have 1,500 people making candy bars and uh, M&Ms here in Chicago. Some of my favorite candy, and they produce it right here. You can see even those folks tend to be concentrated in a couple of small areas. Now, if you go to the next, if you turn the page, all I'm doing in this one is overlaying where people live by race, with where people live by class. So where does the creative class live? It turns out that creative class neighborhoods, with one exception, are white neighborhoods. The one exception is Hyde Park, University of Chicago. So in a racialized society, that's the way it works. These things are always intertwined. Race, class, we'll see that many other things here. Okay, big deal. By the way, you could do this for any city in the country, you'll get the same results. Why does it matter? This next chart, you might have to turn it to be able to see it. This is mapping people that live in urban areas that are poor. So everybody that is included here is below the government's definition of who is poor. I'm looking at it by race, and I'm asking the question, does it matter what race you are if you are poor in what kind of neighborhood you live? And the answer is, yes, it does. So if you're poor and you are white living in an urban area... The most common experience you have is that you live in a non-poor neighborhood. A neighborhood where almost everybody around you is not poor. And you get the exact opposite, the mirror image, if you are black or Hispanic. If you are poor, it means you will live most commonly in high concentrated poverty neighborhoods. Which, we know from our research, means... Higher crime, poor schools, less services, on and on, are the issues. Why do we get this result? If you have segregation by race and by class, you have to get this result. There is no other opportunity to have anything else. We get this result because we accept segregation by race and by class. It means then, your racial experience of being poor is completely different, depending on if you're white or not white. Okay, now it has even a much huger implication. So if you turn to the next page, you see a couple of lines. It says, median net wealth over time, 1984 to 2007. What this is showing is it's following the same black and white families across time and saying, what's happening to our wealth? Wealth is everything you own, everything you own minus everything you owe. What do you have left? So... It really has been fairly unchanged for African Americans over time. The answer is, on average, about five thousand uh, dollars. It doesn't matter if we look at this by class and so on. It just holds steady. It's been that way. But you can see for white families over time, wealth. It started around twenty thousand back in 1984. Has grown now to a hundred thousand, at least in 2007. This gap keeps growing. We've been tracking it since the 80s. When we first started looking at it, the gap between white and black was about 8 to 1, eight, eight times the wealth for whites compared to African Americans. I'll tell you what it is in our latest data in uh, just a moment. Okay, so our latest data comes from the U.S. government, 2012, and this is what they say. Whites have, on average, 50% more wealth than Asians. Oh, look at that. Yay. Okay. Thank you. Uh, 18 times more wealth than Hispanics. And 20 times more wealth than African Americans. So, I'm going to put this in context. We don't know of a single society that's had this much wealth discrepancy between groups and survived. These when you get this much division between peoples in terms of economic access, what happens is what you're seeing now, the country starts to explode because people simply cannot quietly sit and just accept that. And because it takes money to make money, unless we do something that's rather jolting to our system, these gaps will just keep growing bigger and bigger and bigger. So this is a fundamental issue that we have to face together. If you're able to go to that next slide, part of my job is to figure out in what areas are we racialized currently in the U.S. When I find 10 or more studies in an area that say we are racialized from their research, I add it to my list here. I don't know if you can see it. No, you cannot. It's too small. But there are 39 areas so far. I'll read a few to give you a sense. We are racialized in health, death, employment, marriage, occupation, life expectancy, crime, uh, personal and social identity, advertising, what advertising we see actually shaped by race. Quick example, I was having students look at uh, shows primarily geared for African Americans and primarily geared for white Americans because people actually make shows to target certain audiences. We didn't expect this, but... They watched the commercials, too, and we found out, even if you're advertising McDonald's on both channels, the advertisement for McDonald's is different if it's targeted to an African-American audience than white. They just, they actually change their own commercials. One of the things was that there was a movie coming out at the time called Scream Whatever, 28, or, you know, there's a bunch of them. (laughs) When it was a primarily white audience, you see all white actors... And, you, you know, they're introducing the movie to you. When it was a primarily black audience, the, the, what they showed you were... You saw white actors, but only when they were screaming and getting uh, in trouble and running away. And you, you saw the three African-American actors in it. And you got a very different picture or view of what the movie would be. So they, they tailor it that way, too. We watch different television shows, as I've noticed, as I've said. Property values, entrepreneurship, child poverty... Criminal justice system, respect. There's so many, I can't read them all, but you get, you get the sense. Okay, now, we wrote this book, and I'm going to talk about what we did in this book. So we did this big national study. We first surveyed thousands of people by telephone, internet, and then we sampled people from there, and we went to hundreds of people's homes around the country, and we interviewed them in their home or restaurant, wherever they wanted to meet. So we, we asked a number of questions. I'm going to focus on three today. One was, and this was usually the one we would start with after some introductory stuff, do you think the country has a race problem? Okay, so we asked that, and we right away saw that there were big differences in the response if you were white or not white. So for white evangelicals, the race problem, if you can go to the next slide, really boiled down to th- three things. Individual sin and misinterpretation, uh, division between individuals, and then sometimes the race problem is self-interested minorities trying to make a big deal out of things. I'm going to share a couple of stories here with you. So I interviewed Debbie, uh, who by any definition would be evangelical. She's uh, white, 27 years of age, holds firmly to the authority of scriptures, is born again, evangelizes with her words and actions, went to an evangelical university, and uh, currently works in her local church. Uh, basically, she spent her whole life in the evangelical white subculture. All right, so we met for an interview on a Saturday morning at a restaurant, and she's very open, very friendly, easygoing, candidly stating what she thought. So when I asked her if she thought our country had a race problem, she said, matter of factly, I think we make it a problem. So I asked, well, how do we make it a problem? Well, to me, people have problems. I mean, two white guys, they're working together. They're gonna have arguments once in a while. Women are gonna have arguments. It happens between men and women, between two white guys and two white women. People are gonna have arguments with people. But I feel like when it's, say, a black guy and a white guy having an argument, we don't say, hey, there's two guys having an argument. We say, hey, there's a race problem. So that's what the race issue is to me. So you can see here for Debbie, race problem is one of misinterpretation. Asked if there's any race problem beyond that. She said, well, there are some people who due to ignorance judge others by the skin color. Um, But that's both rare and inexcusable for Christians. What stood out was the contrast in when we interviewed evangelicals, people of color. What they most commonly said was nothing like this. They would talk about unequal access to education, neighborhoods, resources, systematic discrimination, unfair systems. The most common response I got when I would ask a person of color, especially if they were black and Hispanic, if their race problem is, they would laugh. So I'd wait till them finish laughing, and I'd say, why are you laughing? And they would say, because that's not really a question. It's so obvious, it's silly to ask that. So I want to unpack just a little bit where do these different subcultures come from? Why, why do people talk so differently about race here? So if you can show us the next slide. All right, there we go. Okay, so turns out We are shaped by our cultures, and our cultures have been shaped in this country by our experience going back historically. So I'm not going to talk about the history of it all, but I'm going to show you the cultural tools, the religiously based cultural tools that white evangelicals draw on, how they then interpret the world. Okay, so if you can go to the next slide, please. You'll see there are three main ones, what I call accountable free will individualism, relationalism, and anti-structuralism. So, I become a Christian by accepting Christ. So I have this individual decision to make to accept my Savior or not. So I have this one-on-one relationship. All right? And I am accountable. If I choose not to, Christ does not make me accept. If I choose not to, there is an ultimate penalty, right? We believe I go to hell. So there's what the accountable part means. Accountable, free will, individualism. The focus that Christianity is this one-on-one relationship. Now, that in itself is culture. Uh, Many a missionary will tell you certain places they go, they go into a town, and the leader of the town converts. Everybody converts. When I was in Scandinavia living there, when Harry Bluetooth, who we have the Bluetooth thing named after, he was the last Viking king... He became Christian, and all Vikings became Christian, right? They didn't individually make this relationship. That's because their leader did, they do. All right, so that's one. Then the second is that gets generalized, relationalism. What is life? Life is family relationships. Life is relationships with friends. So that's how white evangelicals view the world typically, is at that level, individual individuality and then relationships between other individuals. And then finally, then, what goes with this is what we call anti-structuralism, which is the inability to see that there's anything else, that there would be like a criminal justice system. There's people, but there isn't systems. Um, We asked uh, this evangelical, even if we asked directly, they would say this. So we said, what is your perception of the race problem? Does it mostly boil down to attitude, or do you see it also in the legal system and job market? kind of a more structural problem, as far as you know. He said, as far as I know, I would have to say it's individual attitude. That would be my experience. No matter what we did, no matter what we talked about, always, for white evangelicals, the race problem had nothing to do with inequality. It had everything to do with sin, division between individuals, and then self-interested others. Often they would say people like Jesse Jackson making uh, race a problem. Okay, this matters, though. This matters a lot for how we relate to each other. One of the things that we found is that when we talked about race, these very kind evangelicals usually got irritated. And as we explored that more, a big part of the irritation was that for their non-white fellow evangelical brothers and sisters, they should know better. They keep trying to make race a bigger issue than what it really is. And the reality is, it's not good relationships between people. So, at the very best, they were irritated. Often, they were downright angry because they, in their mind, it just they were not acting Christian. They were not thinking in a Christian way. Okay, so since inequality had nothing to do with the race problem, we asked a second question. Why do you think there's a race problem? Um, if you could show the slide with our baby on it. Very fitting for today. <laughs> it says, when, we inter- when interviewed, white evangelicals seemed to be as comfortable with racial inequality as they were with a Sunday afternoon nap. That's just reality. It's not a big deal. So we wanted to ask them why they thought there was inequality. So we asked the question this way, one of the ways. This focusing on just two groups here. We say, studies show that on average... Blacks have worse jobs, income, and housing than white people and asked them why they thought this was. Okay, so one in seven evangelicals, when we said that, told us we were wrong. You need to go back and check your information. You have faulty studies, is what they would say. Six out of seven, though, did agree, but they gave very patterned responses for why there would be inequality. What they did is what we would expect. Their responses are... Much more likely to be individually focused. Lack of motivation. Lack of the ability to see that opportunity is before you and seize it. Um, Laziness. Lack of a vision of what could be. And they are much less likely to ever cite structural accounts. Unequal access to education or the existence of discrimination. Okay. Well, that matters quite a bit. If you could show that next slide. What happened then is, since we're saying there is... If they're accepting there's inequality, they're basically having to solve this equation. I don't want to go all algebra on you. It's really simple here. As Christians, we believe we're equally created. White evangelicals firmly believe there's equal opportunity for all. And the end result is unequal outcome. You can't take equal plus equal and get unequal. So you have to solve for X. And the way that X was solved was individual deficiency, relational deficiency... Or cultural deficiency. Cultural would be like not speaking proper English. Or things like that. That's what they would say. Alright, so the next slide is not a slide. It is in your thing. It's one with all kinds of numbers on it. And I want to scare you with the numbers. I'm going to interpret it in a moment. But if you like numbers, this will be useful. This is comparing, in this case, black and white Christians and black and white Non-Christians. And we're looking at how they explain inequality. Why do we have inequality? They could say, in this case, this is a, where they get four possible answers. And they're supposed to say yes or no to them. Do you think it's because of differential ability that there's inequality? Yes or no? Because of lack of motivation on African Americans' parts? Because of lack of access to quality education? Or because of discrimination? So you'll see I have some lines and some circles there. Because I'm trying to get you to focus... Let's look at motivation The first set of columns is Everybody else, other Americans Who are not evangelical, conservative, Protestant, Christians 51% of the other Americans who are white Say the reason there's black-white inequality Is lack of motivation for blacks 42% of African Americans agree with that Go over to the conservative Protestant 62% of conservative Protestants who are white Say it So if you look at that line going back that's more than other white Americans. If you look for what happens for African Americans who are Christian, less say it's because of motivation, lack of motivation, than do other African Americans. So, I am going to do this. I gotta. I can't hold this, and this is end up going to make it seem more dramatic than it is. But uh, okay. Thank you. Okay, so that chart in English is this. Here we go. Jesus' prayer, final prayer for us is that we would be this. On race, Americans are this. On race, Christians are this. Divided by faith. We're supposed to be this. The general American public is this. But the Christians, Jesus' followers, the reality is we are this. And that's what this chart is showing you. That's what multiple charts I could show you show. There's something about faith that actually pushes us further apart. Ouch. Okay. You have one more chart. I'm not going to go through it, but it's showing how the gaps. We've been following the same uh, 2,500 Americans over time. And the gaps on these things aren't getting smaller. They're getting bigger among Christians. Because we're interpreting the world with our culture. Our culture And our cultures are different because we have been racially separate for so long. Our faith intensifies our culture. It reaffirms our culture. So if our cultures by race are this, if we are engaged in practice of faith, it pushes us even further apart. So what's the solution? That was our final question. Well, what would we do if we have this race problem? White evangelicals, two answers, and then if you can put up the slide, that would be great. One is called the miracle motif, the other, make a friend across race. So most white evangelicals, when asked, what would be the solution to the problem of race said, convert to Christianity, that's called the miracle motif. If you convert, you automatically accept other people for who they are, and that will end the division. Or, and this becomes very important, Try to find a friend of a different race, and that will solve the issue as well. These things can work, but in and of themselves, they don't work. What really stood out is when we asked non-white Christians this. They talked about these things, but they also always talked about overcoming a system, segregated neighborhoods, unequal access to jobs, a criminal justice system that is not fair, um, encoding in laws, what they call redlining, where loans are given differentially based on your race or where you live. The problem is this, for white evangelicals, who Wall Street Journal says, we are the most engaged group on the issue, is that you can't solve the problem with just this perspective. It's like this, if I own a home by a river and I continually have a flooding basement, and my basement floods because I have cracks in all, all around my foundation. If my solution is to continually go down with buckets and just try to get the water out as fast as I can, I can be very good at that. I can dedicate my life to that. But I will never solve the problem of flooding in my basement because I'm not able to see that it's a structural problem. There's something in the way we've arranged my house. It's faulty. I, maybe I don't want to admit it. It's painful. I, I want to think I have a perfect house. So... Who knows why? But that's really what we're doing with all our energy and activity. And we're not getting there. So just a couple more slides here to show you where we might go. Religion has incredible potential to unify us. We know that's what we are called to do. But we have this powerful, countervailing force that's happening right now as we sit here across the country and that is that we gather racially separate. Now, we don't gather that way here. And that's why we have to have churches like New Community. You don't realize how radical you're being in just sitting here together. This is so rare, it would blow your mind. At least 9 out of 10 Americans that are going to church right now are sitting with people who are all the same race as them. Why does this matter? Next slide gives you a couple of things we do chapters on this, but i am just quickly say, what happens is when we gather together, when it's racially separate, even though we don't gather together for that purpose, we form and reify racial boundaries, racial ideas of the world. So if I gather in my all-white church and I say, do you think there's a race problem? My white friend says, no, I don't see a race problem. I go, yeah, that's how I see it. And I've reaffirmed what I believed. And that happens all the time. It also then creates very divergent identities of who we are. Who am I? Who are you? I can remember when I was a young Christian, just got married. We went to Moody Bible Church at that time. And I don't know what Moody Bible is now. I think it's become more diverse, but then it was all white. And we would walk directly by an African-American church to go to church. And I remember, maybe too new in my faith, but being puzzled by that. Why do all these people that look this way go there and all the people that look another way go there? And then we'd go in and learn about Jesus calls us to love one another. And I just found that odd. But being in my subculture, I learned to accept, well, that's just the way it is. We produce divergent understandings of the world. We create whole separate networks of music and who our heroes are, segregated social networks. And ultimately, and this one even surprised us when we were writing the book, when we gather in separate churches, we actually increase that racial wealth gap I was talking about. Now you would think, how in the world is that related? It's related because of how we find jobs and make our way through the system. It's because we use social networks and access to people that can get us into the good places or tell us where we're supposed to go. And when you take one group of people that have 20 times the resources and they're helping each other, they're going to get their folks further than another group that has 1 the resources, Right? Okay, so conclusion here. As I've mentioned before, so despite very good intentions, hard work, much energy, much activity, white evangelicalism actually does more to perpetuate racial division than to bring us together. And it does so because of its history, because of its subcultural toolkit, and because of the very organization organization of American religion. So what can we do? If we go to the next slide. I say is this, just be. Four B's here. Number one, and I start with this one on purpose. Believe your brothers and sisters. For some reason, when someone of another race comes and gives us a perspective and it doesn't match our own, our first instinct is to not trust them, to try to correct them, to uh, wonder if they quite understand the world. Let's take a different tack. Let's say... My brothers and sisters, are I'm going to believe they're good folks who wish to tell me what they experience. So I'm going to start from that. I will believe you, even if it doesn't match what I am or what I know. Second, to be prayerful, to lament, to ask God for truth, unity, and direction. Okay, so at noon today, and then going on throughout the day, they're going to play some football games. And as we know what's going on, Started by Colin Kaepernick. Some of those players, and they're not going to be white players. They're black players. They're going to go like this during the national anthem. And some people are furious, and others are like, yeah. But really, this is what God's calling us to do. To get down on our knees and to start by lamenting. When God prays for unity, and we're like this, we have to start with lament. We don't know what we've been doing, but help. Help. We start there, right? Amen to that. Okay, and then be radical. But look what my be radical is. Go to church where you're the minority. That's it. That's simple. Go to church where you're the minority. I challenged, um, my son went to university in Arkansas. I challenged all the students speaking in chapel. Said, you're young. You're not tied down to, usually to marriages and houses and mortgages and Jobs that you're trying to, you, you got flexibility right now. Just, if just for those few years you're in college, be radical. Go to a church where you're the minority. I even put up on a slide the churches and where they were in the city for them. And my son says, three people took me up on it. Three. So here we are talking about the youth of our nation, and they've already bought into where they need to go to church. I mean, how did they learn this so early? But they did. And then finally, Be active. So there are always groups already working, and we can join those groups. We can speak out. We have a group called Evangelicals for Justice, focusing on racial justice. And there are other faith-based groups here and across the land. So finally, if you put up this very last slide, I want to ask something from you. Here's Jesus' prayer. I pray that all of them may be one so that the world may believe. What I want you to do is to help make me a liar I want this book called Divided by Faith that says we're actually more separated than other Christians, than other Americans. I want you to make it false so that people have collective book-burning parties of this book and say how outdated it is. So that's my prayer. Let me close with prayer here. Father, race affects us, all of us. It has taken so many lives, physically, physically, emotionally. It has been going on for generations. Way before we got here, it goes on now. Our call, we understand, Lord, is can we focus enough on you to end this? Please, Lord, give us truth, give us wisdom, give us passion, and give us unity, the unity that only can come through you. Amen.